Kia ora and welcome to the very first episode of our brand new podcast, Recovering, where we make space to look again at news stories with the journalists who covered them. I'm Petra Bagast from Media Chaplaincy New Zealand. There is always more to a news story than what we see. So throughout Recovering, broadcaster and chaplain, Reverend Frank Ritchie, will be joined by journalists from across New Zealand's media industry to unpack the stories that have shaped and changed them while their work shaped and changed us. In this episode, investigative journalist Paula Penfold sits down with Frank to talk, amongst other things, about Deleted, her most recent Stuff Circuit documentary covering the Uyghur persecution in China. Now with over 30 years in journalism, Paula's conscientious, skillful and determined work has brought her face-to-face with issues of justice, human rights and democracy, from riots in Paremuremu prison in the late 90s to the illegal assisted suicide of Audrey Wallace. Her investigative journalism played a critical role in overturning the wrongful conviction of Taina Pora in 2015, and Paula continues to work at the forefront of New Zealand current affairs. Paula, thank you for taking the time to jump into this lovely little studio with me to have a conversation about you and your work. Thank you very much for having me. I'm thrilled to be invited. Thank you. Now, in terms of what this podcast is all about, I think you encapsulate it really well. You've got a long career in journalism. You've done some amazing stories. And part of this podcast is about helping people to get a feel for the humans behind some of the stories, those who tell the stories. And of course, the big question we asked was what story has had the biggest impact on you? Uh, And we're going to talk about the story that you chose shortly. But looking down through your career... There's a million and one stories you could have chosen that were huge Mm. and stories that could cause a lot of people to burn out if they're faced with the emotional impact of some of those stories, if they had to dive in and do the investigating. So there's a quote that I read from you in Mm. Women's Weekly, because I'm an avid Women's Weekly (laughs) reader. And the quote was, you said, it's depressing this job, but there is a responsibility to tell people's stories. Can you unpack that a little? I think that that must have been about an Afghanistan story, was it? With the seven babies. Yes, the seven children who were killed um, in an explosion when unexploded ordnance left behind on a New Zealand firing range was picked up by kids and carried back to their village and seven children were killed in that explosion. And, you know, I will never, ever forget sitting in the mud home of one of the mothers and the other two mothers because there were three mothers who lost the seven children and the other two mothers arrived and they all wanted to tell us about what had happened and they hadn't met anybody from New Zealand before, nobody from the New Zealand Defence Force or the New Zealand government had had any contact with them we were the first and we were journalists and I think that's why I said that somebody needed to tell the world, what had happened to their children. Mm. So that's that responsibility that I think I was speaking of. And depressing is maybe not the word. Um, I mean, it can be depressing, but I, I just think I mean heavy. Like it's kind of heavy, the load sometimes that you feel when you're trying to do justice and seek justice for people like that. 
You've been around a while in the industry and told a lot of stories. You mm-hmm. face a story like that and you know that it's not the end of it when you walk away and you then there's another story and then there's another story and then there's mm-hmm. another story. The stuff doesn't end. What keeps you in it? Um, yeah, it does just keep on going and you have with it, with the back catalogue of stories you know, they're real living people attached to that back catalogue. So that contact continues. And and that's enriching. It's, you know, it's important to me to not just be that journalist who gets the get and then walks away. Um, so what keeps you going is that you want to try to make a difference to those people who need to have their stories told, their voices heard. I mean, but don't, I, sh- I shouldn't sound too, um, what's the word? It could make me sound a little bit gullible. I mean, you have to test all of those stories. You have to apply some level of interrogation to them and know that there's always a motivation for people to talk. So you have to apply a kind of journalistic rigour to every side of a story. But usually it's pretty clear the balance of who has power in a situation and who doesn't. Mm. In the story of the seven babies, you talked about crying uh, by the graveside as the mothers came to the graveside. And a lot of people might have an image of you as the hardened journalist uh, who asks the hard questions. That's going to come up and delete it a little bit because there's some scenes in Deleted that I think uh, just show your tenacity uh, and are fantastic. But that journalist standing beside the graves crying, how do you move on from that? I just... You know, there's a couple of times on stories where I've lost it like that, like really cried. Um, And the two that spring to mind are both about mothers losing their children. The other uh, similar incident was when we were covering Typhoon Haiyan in the Philippines. And I can't remember the final figure, but something like ten or 12,000 people were killed. And we were filming in a village um, near Tacloban, which was the eye of the storm. And we walked through the mud and there was a woman who was probably my age and she was looking for her daughter who had just graduated university as an accountant just days before. And she'd been looking for her for days. And it was very clear from the smell of death in the air that, you know, she wasn't going to find her. Mm. And we just held on to each other. We did, clearly didn't know each other. We had no language in common. But I think as mothers, you you know, there's some kind of, what is it, bond that you share where you understand without any words the pain that somebody is going through. And we just held on to each other. Mm-hmm. So it was a little bit like that, I suppose. And I was just watching these three mothers kiss the gravestones of their dead children And I just cried and cried and cried. And I was with journalist John Stevenson. He was uh, with us in Afghanistan for that story as he had been on our previous trip to Afghanistan. He's an amazing journalist and incredible human being. And he said to me, "Uh, this will inform your reporting. The fact that you're feeling this way will inform your reporting. And I thought that that was a good way to look at it. Mm. How do you maintain that empathy? Because it, 
it's a very vulnerable space to be when you're dealing with such big stories, such emotional stories. It would be easy to be overcome by that. So therefore, it would be easy to put the walls up and not maintain that empathy. Just be the hardened journalist who does the story, knocks back the black coffee, maybe mm-hmm. has a cigarette and moves on to the next story. How do you maintain that empathy? I don't think that you would get the story if you didn't have the empathy. That's not I, I, that's not the reason I hope that I have it. I, but I don't think that you, I don't think that the journalists who are operating like that do these kinds of stories in mm. the first instance. Um, but I don't think that if they tried, they'd get the people to speak because I think people need to understand that you understand them. How do you maintain it is a good question, though, because it has been a long time, as you rightly point out. <laughs> um, now, and actually, we met about three years ago on a story, a lawyer who described his burnout and when he had to step away from the law for a while, and he described the phenomenon as compassion fatigue. Mm. And I hadn't heard that term before. I don't know that I've ever heard anybody since use it. I don't know if he'd coined that phrase or not, but it resonated actually. Mm. And and I've thought about it since, and I and I and it does resonate not in a way. I think there's an important distinction because it doesn't it doesn't mean that you stop being compassionate towards people in their individual circumstances. But I think what it means to me is that the collective weight of all of those individual examples of compassion can be fatiguing sometimes, and you need to look after yourself as well if you're going to be able to continue to have that empathy and tell those stories because I think the risk of burnout is quite high and sometimes I can feel myself on the edge of it Mm. when you're in the midst of one of those big investigations or you've done a few in a row. I think it's just called that you need to have a holiday every now and then. But you you must know exactly what I'm talking about. This is what you do. Right, compassion fatigue is a thing. It is. It is. Yeah? A, it's not just a uh, term that he coined. It is. Right. It is it's a well-used a real term. Yeah. Is it? Aid okay. and development agencies. Uh, right. Yeah. And what I do, there are times where I slow down the coffees with people just because it's, I'm feeling the weight of it, uh, and I've got to focus on looking after myself because in order to do what I do, just as with you, you've got to be really present in the moment. Uh, and if I'm not really present, then the person's not getting what they sat down for. Uh, and you can see the signs, so you need to totally. slow down. Yeah. That's good. So f- f- I know what I do for myself then in mm-hmm. order to handle that self-care so that I can do what I do well. But what do you do? Oh, I want your top five tips, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but I, what I've learned and, and when I can recognise that I need to remind myself of those things is when I'm feeling that way. But just really simple things like slowing down on the coffees with people, yes. saying no to engagements, staying home, reading a book, doing some meditation. I recently, um, the house that I'm living in has got a bit of a stream down the back and I just go and sit by the stream. Mm. It's stuff like that, just being quiet, writing in my journal, uh, expressing gratitude. Those really simple things, drinking herbal tea. Yeah. That's good. Those are pretty much the things that I do. I'd throw tramping in there, uh, just being out in nature. But it's amazing what science has shown us too in terms of what the brain does, how the brain heals if we just look at greenery. So you're sitting down by the stream is just something that we naturally engage with. But I encourage meditation, solitude, silence, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. That water thing is interesting. We we did a um, 
before one of the Afghanistan trips, we did a, you know, like hostile environment training thing Mm. that we have to do. And they were teaching us about how to be calm if something terrible happens. And one of the exercises they did was to take yourself mentally to somewhere that you feel relaxed and Mm. peaceful, at peace and calm. So you do mentally, and he asks us to describe it afterwards. Every single one of us was by water, and the, and yeah. he said that ninety five eight percent of people have water in that scenario. I don't know why. It's fascinating. But, yeah, yeah, there's something soothing about it. Clearly, yes. Yeah, why there's so many meditation uh, right. tracks that you can get your hands on that have water sounds in them, water and wind, uh, generally because they're very similar. Right. In the way that makes they sound. sense. Yeah. There's a quote that I've got before we move on to uh, the story that we're going to talk about that resonated with me. And I wanted to know what you think about this. So Anne Curry, she's a former television journalist from the Today Show on NBC in the US. She said, journalism is an act of faith in the future. Oh, nice. What do you reckon? An act of faith in the future. Yeah. So if Mm. I tell the story now, Mm. even if the problem doesn't get solved now... I, I really like that. It's kind of a version of journalism being the first draft of history in a way, ah, I suppose, I like isn't that. it? Because often a lot more will emerge between now and whenever the, solu- the problem is fixed. Mm. But you've got to get it started, the conversation. An act of faith in the future, I really like that. Yeah. Really like that. Because so much of what we do does not have an imminent result or solution that's likely anytime soon, but you've got to hope that it will at least get the ball rolling. Mm. Yeah, I like it. Thank you. <laughs> Which is a, it's a good leap into the story that we are going to talk about. So you got to ask the question, what's the story that's had the biggest impact on you? Mm. Uh, what have you chosen? Well, I was so useless, wasn't I, when you asked me that question because I couldn't decide because – you know, because so many stories have had a really big impact on me and the kind of enduring one, I guess, is the case of Tana Porter, mm. which is not the one that I chose, but it's probably the one that people would expect me to choose because, you know, it's not often that you get to be involved in a project with an incredible group of people, which leads to somebody being freed from prison after 21 years. So that was massive. But I have wanted to speak about our most recent investigation because it's so much at the forefront of my mind and and it's so horrible what's happening that I wanted to be able to talk about it. So thank you for the opportunity, which was our investigation that you referred to called Deleted, mm. which is into the persecution of the Uyghur Muslim minority in Xinjiang. Just so that you know, we here in the office thought you were going to do Tana Porter as well. So it was a pleasant surprise when you chose something else. And having been involved in some aid and development organisations, I've been following uh, this one as well. Can I just say it's ballsy. It's ballsy because it's taking on China and throwing truth up that they clearly don't want to be known. How did you get started on the story? It had been on our radar for a little while Through things like, um, you know, through some of our reporting, we have connections in the Muslim community. And I noticed that after the Christchurch massacre, there was a donation that the community didn't want to receive. And it was over the treatment of uh, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. And so I, I started to have a closer look at why they wanted to make that statement. So it had been on our radar, but it's a really difficult story to tell from New Zealand for so many reasons, um, and then COVID hit, making it 
virtually impossible. Uh, but then we found a way into it, which was that one of our contacts in the Muslim community told us that there was a woman who was prepared to go public with her story, which was of her brother's extrajudicial imprisonment in Xinjiang. And once you have a personal way to tell a story like that, you've got your way in. Um, for us, because we're an investigative journalism team, we needed a whole lot more, but at least we had an entry point. So that's so that's how it began. And that was the incredibly courageous Riz, whose brother Maulan remains locked up mm. somewhere in a prison in Xinjiang. Mm. Just to divert... Uh, slightly. Stuff Circuit has done some amazing work and I love the innovation and the innovation I think really comes to the fore and deleted because you couldn't get into China to film the stuff. So you have the opening scenes which look like you're in the streets of the place that we're talking about and then you quickly find out that it's not. How did all that come together? That will delight Toby Longbottom, our creative director, and Phil Johnson, our cinematographer, that you thought that. And also Roger and Was, the model makers. Necessity is the mother of invention, right? We couldn't get there because of COVID. But even if we could, as we say in the story, we knew that journalists just cannot freely report Mm. from Xinjiang. We knew that there wasn't really much point. We weren't going to be able to tell the truth by going there and so we wanted to be able to find a vehicle through which we could still make a documentary and we wanted to give it an authenticity so it was as you could see you know really meticulous hours and hours countless I hate to think how many hours of work to make it have the look and feel of a city in Xinjiang and when we showed the Uyghur people who we interviewed for the documentary at the beginning, they thought it was real too. So that was like, fuel tick. <laughs> we must have got it right. <laughs> at any point uh, before it coming out, because once it's come out, you're over the line. Is any point where you've been nervous about it? Considering you're dealing with China, you're putting out a different narrative from what it's trying to say on that issue. You've got our government involved in a relationship there. You're talking to businesses who have connections. Yeah. Any nervousness? Yeah. I mean, we'd be stupid not to have a little bit of nervousness. Sometimes, sometimes people sort of have used words like you know, courage around our reporting, and it's not, mm. it's not that. If anything, I think I go into these things a little bit naively, <laughs> actually, <laughs> and it's not until I'm in them that I realise, oh, <laughs> this is quite serious. But um, we, yes, we did have, we did have some concerns, and at one point, I remember speaking to a source who said, "You know that you'll never go to China now, don't you?" And I said, yes, although I hadn't really considered that. Um, but now I do know that I will never go to China, mm. which is a shame because I would have loved to and I hadn't been there. Mm. Yeah. In the documentary, your tenacity comes through uh, in quite a stellar way. There's the scene where you're at the Auckland uh, Chinese New Year Festival and the Consul General is there, the Chinese Consul General, and there's been no comment from him up until that point. There's, everything's just been flicked off, and you start asking the questions. Mm. What's the thought process leading into that and then through it? Um, the thought process is this is the only opportunity we have to put these questions, also that we're journalistically obligated to seek balance and so this was their opportunity to put their perspective and they hadn't responded to any of our other requests for comment or for an interview. The thought process is 
I need to try to seek some answers on behalf of the Uyghur community and on behalf of Riz about her brother. And the thought process is, what is he going to say? Like, what is he going to say? Mm. And, you know, just rem- trying to remember all of the questions I have to ask him because there's so many. Um, but actually that went on for longer than we expected it to, if I'm <laughs> honest. And that it's not even, what you see in the documentary is not even the full version yeah, of it. I can imagine. We sort of followed him through the showgrounds and... I mean, the the backstory is that I don't. He, he clearly wasn't prepared for mm. us to be asking him he's those nervous. questions. You can tell he's nervous. His voice is shaking a little bit. Right. In the, in well, the just start before of that. that interview, he was interviewed by a television crew who were asking him, you know, lovely questions about the Chinese New Year and New Zealand's relationship with China, and it was all very nice. And so when he turned to us, he was smiling, anticipating that it would be the same thing. But his face changed pretty quickly once we started asking those questions. Yeah. And what keeps you at it? Because, I mean, there's the point where he's trying to deny it. Uh, he's acting like it's not true. He uses Donald Trump's lines, fake news. Mm. And then you've got to keep going at it in order to try and get the answers. I'm fascinated by any person who doesn't take that first answer and goes, no, well, clearly I'm not going to get what I'm after. Right. It's It's... I don't know. Gosh, I don't know actually what keeps you going. What keeps you going is that I like <laughs> I like asking questions. <laughs> um and also it, that it wasn't it's just not good enough. Yeah. It's absolutely not good enough to say what he said that that it's fake news and that it's baseless and that it's groundless. I mean, that's just patently not true. Those are the lines that he's been given by the CCP in Beijing. But but no way were we going to accept that that was an adequate response because it quite clearly is not. And also, out of a duty, a responsibility towards Riz because she hadn't had any answers uh, from the Chinese embassy here and our foreign affairs officials had really let themselves be brushed away by the embassy. And so it's our role to apply some pressure and say, you might think that you can do that in China, but here, this is a democracy with a free press. We want to ask some questions. And the follow-up weirdness to that Mm. was, I don't know if you saw the reporting about the Chinese embassy press conference a few weeks Mm. afterwards, to which, strangely, we were invited. (laughs) And they wanted to know our questions in advance. So we gave them a patsy one just so that we could secure a spot to ask ask some questions. And it was the most extraordinary display of propaganda that I've ever seen in this country. I've never seen a press conference like that. They, It was really ham-fisted, I've got to say, by the Chinese government and by the embassy here, thinking that whatever practices they apply with their you know, easily healed media in China, which are propaganda organs, thinking that that might work here. It was really quite bizarre. Mm. So we asked a few more questions and then they muted us, (laughs) literally (laughs) muted us. And my um, boss wanted to know how he's never figured out after all these years how to mute me, which I didn't think was very 
be fair. <laughs> there's a bit there's a bit in what you've just said that I think is really important for people to grasp because when someone who doesn't understand the media watches something like that and they've got a slightly cynical, well, full cynical view of the media, they might just see the person going at it to create the drama and get the headlines and look like they're doing their job taking on power. But what you just voiced was your sense that you were advocating for someone as you carried on asking those questions, that what you're getting wasn't good enough because there's this person over here who has a brother who's in prison and they need answers. Uh huh. Yeah. We're just the conduit, essentially. And thank you for pointing that out because I'm absolutely sure that that's what people think, that all of that kind of thing is just for effect. In fact, on a different interview with a kind of similar result in some ways, which was one with Billy Takahika, mm. and he walked out of the interview and people thought that that would be a result that we'd be like, woohoo, you know, got the got the walk out. Mm. <laughs> but it's not like that at all. It's like I actually was only a third of the way through my questions and he knew what was coming and so he left. So it's it's not about the stunt at all. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to explain that. It's, it's really about uh, doing our jobs as journalists, which is seeking answers. Yeah, and I think that's what's going on in a lot of the stuff where you see the public complaining about the media, is that there's that advocacy going on, there's that push to get answers from people who are trained to not give the answer. And Absolutely. in order to get there, you've got to keep at it, you've got to come at it from different angles. Sometimes you have to ask what sounds like dumb questions uh-huh. in order to get to that answer. Yeah, and I felt for my colleagues, not that they need you know any support or sympathy from me here, but in the press gallery when people were making that, levelling that criticism during the COVID press conferences, and like, oh, that question's already been asked. Well, it has been asked, but it hasn't been answered. That's precisely the point for asking it again. And to your point about people trained not to answer those questions, that's exactly right. And the imbalance, I don't know what the stats are now, but I think somebody was recently talking about there being 15 PR and comms people to every one journalist in New Zealand. Mm. And their job is to often train people to not answer the questions. And so I think we would be doing the New Zealand public a disservice if we didn't keep on asking those questions. It's a really, I get really probably a bit sort of boring and nerdy about the role of journalism in a democracy. But actually, you know, look at countries when there, where there isn't a free press and then you might not mind if you hear us ask the same question a couple of times over because mm. the you know they are the possibilities not really one that you want to consider mm. coming back to deleted when you're faced with china coming out and trying to give its narrative on the story there's no genocide going on no all we're doing is dealing with terrorists and trying to help them re-educate them so that they live as productive citizens and you've got the consul general there saying uh, this was an australian organization that came up with this funded by the united states what work have you done to know that the story that you're telling, the story that you've got is the true story versus mm-hmm. what they're trying to pump out to cover their tracks. Uh-huh. So that interview when we fronted up to him was the last thing we did. So by that stage you'd been working on a project for, I don't know, six months in that instance, alongside other things of course. But you've been, I mean it's not a really exciting or glamorous job, mm-hmm. investigative journalism most of the time. It's actually just reading lots of stuff and finding links between things and checking the reliability of your sources and corroborating information with different sources and talking to lots and lots and lots of people and also sometimes trusting your instincts 
to get to a point where you where you feel comfortable enough that you are on the right track. And you know, there was a complaint to the media council about that story, but it wasn't upheld. And one of the criticisms was well, there were lots of there was pages of criticisms in the complaint. But one of the concerns was the alleged unreliability of our information, our sources, and that we had got it wrong is the general tenor of it. But that complaint was thrown out by the Media Council, rightly so, I think, because you know it takes a lot of background, boring research to get to the stage where you're confident enough to say what we said. Mm. With that in mind, are there many stories that you start off and they just don't go anywhere? There are a few, but we don't usually start on stories that we're really lucky because mm. we have... Uh, a fair bit of the biggest benefit we have is time actually because we're funded by New Zealand On Air and so that takes the pressure off us compared to our colleagues who work in daily news who are filing clearly every day or several times a day we don't have to do that and so we have time to find the right story and then find the right way to tell it so we don't usually have to spend time going down paths that aren't going to you know, lead to somewhere but you do have to go into things with an open mind and realize that you might have to throw it all out at the end of the day, and that's okay. That's you know that's fine. We'd mm. rather do that and get it right than keep on going and get it wrong. Mm. Jumping into the personal well-being, there are times watching Deleted where a couple of people break down in tears, and they took me back. I won't say where to a place where I remember talking to some mums who had had their young men taken away in the middle of the night by state police, breaking in with um, sound bombs, uh, soldiers breaking in while babies were sleeping and dragging their boys away. And I remember not sleeping for nights after I sat with those mums and heard those stories. Yeah. So I'm wondering about yeah. your sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a terrible sleeper. <laughs> Funny you should ask. Um, yeah, I don't sleep well. <laughs> yeah, I think too much I, about things like that, um, particularly when you're in the midst of those things and or have just filmed something and people's tears come back to you often in the middle of the night. Um, sometimes tears from years ago come back to you in the middle of the night. Yeah, I don't sleep very well. That's why I look really tired all the time. That's why I drink too much coffee. So it's probably a really vicious circle. <laughs> so what what do you do? What do you do in the night where maybe some of that stuff's coming back and you just can't go to sleep? I'm getting better because of meditation and trying Good. to remember to think about just breathing, right? Yes. Uh, but sometimes, you know, you have to just get up and read a book and take your mind somewhere else. Yeah. But yeah, the self-care stuff that I was talking about earlier really helps. Getting enough exercise, all of those things yeah. really help. But switching off the mind is really difficult sometimes, isn't it? It is, which is why focusing on the breathing is so good. 30 minutes of exercise pretty much gets rid of the cortisol in your body, the stress mm. hormone. Yeah, there's, there's lots of little things, but mm. you've got most of those. Yeah. And when things are going well, they work. And when things are going yes. too stressfully, they don't even cut it anywhere near cut it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Future of journalism. Where do you see it going in New Zealand? Because you talked about the number of PR people versus journalists. And that number of journalists seems to be decreasing in the country. COVID, it took a big hit under COVID. Mm. Where do you see it going here? Well, actually, we just had a staff meeting today because um, it's a year since Janae Boucher yes. bought the company, bought staff. 
And we've actually got more editorial staff now than we did a year ago. And I was really pleasantly surprised to hear that. So it's not all doom and gloom. I mm. mean, some of those companies that looked like they were custard a year ago, when, for instance, Bauer pulled out, well, our media has now come back and brought back so many of those titles. So I actually feel kind of ridiculous, not ridiculously, I feel pleasantly optimistic about the state of media. And I do, and I feel kind of, I'm really heartened by the depth of talent and young people coming through into the industry who feel really passionately about the importance of the job and why they want to tell stories. I think there's a, there's a maturity I'm seeing. Mm. Maybe it's because the ones who are you know, going to end up in the... And I'm not criticising them because everybody needs to pay the bills and you will make more money if you go into PR and comms. And I totally get that. But maybe the ones who are staying are staying in journalism because they really believe in it. So I think think that's a good thing. I feel really positive about the future Mm -hmm. of journalism. And since you work for stuff, I think Sinead's a legend. I like the story that just came out about the staff owning 10% via a trust of the of stuff. There's some good stuff it's happening amazing, there. amazing, hey? Yeah. Yeah, she's, and to be led by a CEO who is a journalist, um, not just a journalist, but a journalist who really values journalism. The trickle down from that, I can't tell you how different it is. I mean, you know, I was at TV3 when Mark Weldon came in as CEO and and got rid of journalism, mm. essentially. Well, he got rid of current affairs. So uh, what did he? He made wine. So Sinead Boucher is a journalist and she really deeply appreciates the importance of what we do. So, yeah, yeah, it's I feel I feel grateful to be led by somebody as remarkable as she is. And I really do think she is remarkable. And I think history, when you look back at the history of media and journalism in New Zealand, she, she'll be a, really, a real shining light. Mm. Having started media chaplaincy towards the end of the Mark Weldon era with yeah. TV3. Right, totally you saw some of the carnage. Totally get it. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's amazing the amount of damage that oh. one person can do in a very short time because they don't like journalism. Yeah, and it ripples right across because Mm. the news industry in New Zealand is so small. Hey, to close off, uh, it would be very easy because there's so much information coming at people now uh, from all over the place. It'd be really easy to watch something like Deleted just go, oh, that's a big story and move on to the next piece of information that comes at us. What would you hope for in terms of those who are watching Deleted? One of the things that we wanted to do was actually kind of an educative role with that story because when we embarked on it, there wasn't much reporting at all about what's happening in Xinjiang. So it was, I would hope that it would bring the situation to people's attention and that they will care and that they will be sceptical about hearing that it's fake news and that they will ask questions and that they will show some compassion Mm. Because, you know, a couple of people within the Jewish community said, after we published that piece, they said that we said, as a society, as an international society, we said after World War II, never again. And it's happening again. Mm -hmm. So I want people to understand the gravity of it. Mm, I like that. And put pressure on our government, since it has a relationship as well. 
Yeah. Hey, Paula, it's been a pleasure. Again, thank you for your time. Thank you very much for having me, Frank. I appreciate it. Ngā mihi nui kia koe, Paula Penfold, a huge and heartfelt thanks for giving so freely of your time and story. Radio New Zealand, ngā mihi kia koe for hosting this series. At Media Chaplaincy New Zealand, we believe in the value of our media, so we offer free, independent and confidential support for media professionals. Kia ora to you for listening, and if you appreciated this episode, we'd appreciate a five-star rating. And give a thought to who else might find it useful or interesting. Make sure to follow to catch future episodes. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and more. Plus, you can find out more about us at mediachaplaincy.nz. If you know someone who works in the industry, please encourage them to get in touch. We'd love to take them out for a coffee, on us of course, and provide space for a confidential chat with someone who gets it. Kakite, until next time, take care.